the uh, one thing I'm sure about is that you will have that song in your head for the next uh, 40 minutes, all right? Bringing in the sheaves. Um, I like the creativity that comes with uh, puppets. Uh, uh, Pastor Grant and his puppet ministry never ceases to amaze me, all right? All right, so this morning, you're going to get a big dose of Greg Odiorn today, and uh, so hopefully that'll be okay. I called an audible uh, late in the week in terms of how I was going to approach the text. And so we're, um, I was hoping to get through verse 12, but of cha- if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians... Uh, actually, go ahead and open to chapter 12, because that's where we're going to start today. But I was hoping to get through verse uh, 12 of chapter 14, and, but I knew with all the comments I had prepared to speak that that would be a lofty goal and, uh, and, and so you'll probably get the same scripture reading next week that you got today. We're going to basically review some things uh, for the purpose of clarity and, uh, and honestly just for me to share my heart with you this morning. Um, I, am, um, I have a whole lot of notes here, and I'm going to work through them. I'm trying to stay tied to them because um, that's the way we're going to get through here in a decent amount of time. Uh, so I want to talk about the process of preaching for just a, a few moments. It, actually, a good portion of this will be how we've approached this particular text of 1 Corinthians. But the process of preaching through a book uh, of the Bible, any book, is, uh, is difficult for both the preacher, whoever that person would be behind this pulpit, as well as for the listener. And that would be you this morning. And um, so when, when we come to a text of Scripture, we must overcome certain obstacles in any text that we're dealing with. Some of those obstacles are the language, whether it be Greek, uh, Aramaic, or Hebrew. Uh, we have, there are certain obstacles that come into play there in translation. Uh, there are certain cultural obstacles that come into play as, as we don't understand what first century church life was like. And there's no way they could certainly know what, what 21st century life would be like. And yet we're called to apply what was true for them in the first century in, in our lives today. But there's a specific obstacle I want to address in a little bit more detail, and that's the obstacle of what I, I'm calling presuppositions. Uh, it also could be pre-understandings. Uh, we have understandings when we come to the text. Those understandings are, are various and, and, and have formed over, in different ways over periods of time. Um, but I have, um, I have my presuppositions, and you have yours, uh, again, as we approach any number of texts. Uh, there are good prop, uh, presuppositions, and there are not good presuppositions. Uh, I, I didn't want to say there's bad presuppositions, because I don't necessarily know if they're bad. They just are. But some are good, and some are not good. And so uh, one good presupposition is one that I, that I hold to, and I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, and, and certainly all of you should hold this uh, presupposition, is that when we come to a text of, of Scripture in the Bible, the presupposition is this is God's Word. This is not the words of man about God. This is God's word that reveals himself to us. It reveals to us who we are, and it reveals uh, many aspects of the world uh, in which we live. It certainly reveals to us the, the glorious power of the gospel to change lives. It reveals to us the person and work of Jesus Christ, that, that he came into this world to save sinners. Paul said that he is chief. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder if maybe there was a, a, a competition. Maybe some of us would put, 
put Paul to the test, right, to see if he's actually the number one sinner in the world. But that's the way he viewed himself. Sin is a real thing. And when we come to the text of Scripture, we understand that sin is an obstacle to our relationship with God. And it needs to be dealt with. And the, the, the beauty of the gospel is that God has dealt with sin once and for all through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And all those who come to faith in what he, and who he is and what he has done, they will share eternal life with God. They will have forgiveness of sins. That's the beauty of the gospel. As we talk about presuppositions, that, that is a good one, that the Bible is the Word of God. It's trustworthy. Uh, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction, for correction and instruction in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16. It's, it's profitable for us as we engage in the text of Scripture. Uh, a not good presupposition uh, is, uh, probably takes various forms, and usually it's not even recognized until it's challenged. So I'm going to be talking about a particular uh, presupposition that got challenged, and, and that's going to uh, help me just kind of explain a little bit about how I process things and, and what's going on in this text. I, ter- I personally believe that many disagreements between genuine Christians, and that's those who have not just called, fallen into the Christian umbrella because of whatever church they attend, but they have come to the, uh, uh, a faith in Jesus Christ um, for what He has done on their behalf, I believe that many disagreements between genuine Christians is a result of conflicting presuppositions. This idea that I, oh, I thought this text said it. Oh, I thought this said that tech, this, uh, the text said this. And then you start digging in your feet, right? You start uh, saying, well, you know, well, so-and-so taught me. And so the fact is we've all been taught by different people at different times throughout our life, uh, people whom we respect and have allowed to, their view to become our own. And so that's just one way presuppositions come into our life is that we have heard a text of Scripture preached. We have uh, adopted that. It, maybe it wasn't even preached. Maybe it was shared by a parent or, or a figure in our life, a person in our life that has influenced. And, and so therefore we have these presuppositions. Not all presuppositions are wrong, but there are some that are not good. And so my question uh, today, as I walk you into this uh, discussion of how I'm dealing with some things, uh, what happens when in your own study one of these presuppositions are challenged? What are we supposed to do when, when something that we have kind of held to our whole life is somehow, in light of Scripture, challenged to, to where we're thinking, is that what it's teaching or not? What are we supposed to do as believers? What am I supposed to do as a preacher? Do I continue to preach what I know some of you want me to preach when I'm not convinced it is right? That is a real tension for many preachers. It's not for me. I want you to understand that. It's not a tension for me. Do I continue to preach a text of Scripture because I think it's what you are accustomed to? It's the safe way. The reality is there are preachers who are afraid of losing their jobs. I'm afraid of violating my calling. And there is a difference. And so we're going to talk very seriously today. And again, I have a whole lot more to share with you. And, 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 And this service is going to go different than the first service because some of what I'm saying is unscripted. It's It's in my heart to love you as a body of believers that God has appointed me over. I'm not worried about losing my job. If if for some reason, it's not because I think, oh, I'm secure. 
I'm Greg Odiorn. This is my pulpit. I, I own this place. No, not at all. And you know that to be true. If there's one strength that I think, I believe I have, which as, as um, pastors, uh, the other pastor and I talk about this on a regular, regular basis, but our, sometimes our greatest strengths are a hair's breadth away from our greatest weakness. And my, one of my strengths is I am a transparent per- person on purpose. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know that I am human. I want you to know I have not figured it all out. But at the weaker side of that thing is, is sometimes that comes across in, in such a fashion that I don't intend it to, and that would be that I'm unsure of myself or I'm unsure of what God is doing in my life and in the life of others. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but I'm confident of this. God is doing something in your life. I do not know as we approach this text, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, as we're talking about spiritual gifts, I have not arrived and have a full comprehension of all things, but I am I, I'm confident in what I will share with you today. But do I continue to preach what I know some of you want to preach when I'm not convinced it is right? No way. Can't do it. Do I preach, thus saith the Lord, when I'm not sure the Lord thus saith? I can't. And that's what has brought me to a point where I'm in conflict. And, and to be blunt and to throw, I don't know if it's in my notes later, but I'm in conflict with our Constitution right now. I'm in conflict because as I'm studying 1 Corinthians uh, 14 and as uh, we've been going through this, there's, there's an aspect of, of this that I used to own. And I don't own it the same way. I haven't jettisoned it. I just don't understand it the same way. And I think it's my responsibility as your pastor to call myself out in front of those who I'm accountable to, understanding that I'm primarily accountable to God, secondarily accountable to you as a congregation. And at any point, if I preach heresy or if I preach doctrine or something that does not align with the, with the Scripture, you are supposed to call me out and get rid of me, all right? Uh, that's, that's the way things are, are supposed to work. I believe I'm supposed to preach my convictions and my opinions. I, I, I do. I at least share my opinions because uh, there are certain areas where it's not thus saith the Lord worthy. It, it, we're figuring some things out, so I have to share my opinions. I'll share an opinion today. Uh, but I think I'm called to, to preach my convictions in such a way that is honest before God and before you. And I also believe that you are to be like the Bereans, and this is what I love. I get, not only am I on the hot seat, you're on the hot seat too. Uh, I believe that you are to be like the Bereans and search the Scriptures to see if what I'm saying is accurate. A passive Christianity would say, we come to church, we sit, we listen, we, we, uh, we absorb, and then we leave. And it never oozes out of us. It never impacts us in a way where it's lived out Christianity. And that is not the purpose of what takes place behind this pulpit week after week after week. What t- what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to come in, kind of wrestle inside of us and then come out of us in various ways. And, and so for a couple men in our church, and I, I, there are others, but I'm going to say there's two men, and I'm not going to call them out by name, all right? Uh, that would, uh, I could, because everything I'm going to say about them is positive, okay? Don't, don't be nervous if you think you're that person, right? But there are two men in our, our church body that do this on a regular basis. They are the epitome of Bereans, they search the scriptures. They are zealous for God's word. They are willing to ask me the hard questions after I've preached a sermon. And I will say that this, uh, 
this uh, flow of speech from my mouth and from my heart is primarily motivated because one of these men has sent me an email regarding the study that we've done up to this point. And I know when I talk about getting emails, and I even said it last week, and I don't intend for it to come across. Again, your presupposition why I share that is that it's hate mail, right? It's not. It is not. I have never received hate mail. I have received I disagree with you, male, right? But that's okay. We're allowed to agree to disagree on certain things, but it's never been hate mail. And, and, and certainly as these two men, in, in my heart, these, these are true. They are zealous for God's word. They're willing to ask me the hard questions. They are loving God first. They're loving the church body second because they're concerned. And they're loving me by asking me these questions because they know my role as the pastor is to communicate God's word in a way that rightly divides what God is is trying to communicate. So I love them for their strength of conviction and their acts of love towards me and towards you. But how, uh, before we get into the, uh, so I'm saying this is prompted by one of those emails. And so uh, like I said, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Not because I was stressing over the email and woe is me, is no, I, I decided I need to address some of the concerns that were brought up. And it's not just a concern for the one person, because he wasn't, he wasn't worried about himself. He was worried about the body, and so we're going to talk about that. But how do we, I, I, I thought about how do we develop convictions about what the Word of God means? And so um, this is something that I came up with. This is something I've been processing. It's not thus saith the Lord. It is very much thus saith Greg Odiorn. And, and so therefore it could be flawed to the core. But it can't be to the core because the first two are very, very biblical uh, as I, cons- I consider it. But I believe our convictions develop as, uh, on four different levels of thought or four different levels of reason, as we reason things out. So uh, bear with me. The first one is biblical. This is the easiest one. Uh, this is the idea of how do, we come up, how do we develop convictions in our life? Well, we go to Scripture, and where Scripture is black and white, where it, where it says, Thus saith the Lord, He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. That's thus saith the Lord. There are those that have the Son, and therefore we have, that is the idea we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. We understand that His death was substitutionary for us. We understand that when we die, we are no longer in this world. We are in His presence. All this we can go to Scripture and say, thus saith the Lord, and that's biblical reasoning, biblical uh, thought, and we come up with our convictions because the text is the text, and what the text of Scripture says that is what we are to believe. Then the second aspect, the second uh, level of, of reasoning we do is called theological. Theological reasoning. And this is uh, the text of Scripture is not black and white on a particular topic or theme. Uh, so we consider various texts of Scripture and what they say, and we, we compare them to one another. And so we come up with this thing called the Trinity. The Trinity is not in Scripture, as in, thus saith the Lord, there are three persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is, is you know, uh, He's responsible for this. This is His characteristics. This is the Son. This is the Holy Spirit. We have gone to vary it. When I say we, listen to me, right? I never did this, right? I didn't come up with a concept of the Trinity. 
This is what was taught to me through theologians and through studying and reading books. And Pastor Joe preached or taught on it on Wednesday night, this past Wednesday. And he'll finish that, uh, not this Wednesday, but the following one. And, uh, and so he can talk about that stuff. But that's, this is theological reasoning. We, we don't understand something. How can all three persons of the Trinity uh, be, uh, be uh, given the attributes of God? Right? And that's why we can say one God, three persons, and not feel like we're contradicting or not, we're not insane. But that's just one example of a theological construct of a, of a sort. We come up with this idea because we're comparing Scripture with, Chris, with Scripture. But then the, la- the, set, the last two uh, processes of building convictions are on, l- on much less stable ground, okay? They're still real, and they're still valid in, in many ways. But the third way I would consider is the logical reasoning. And I'm okay with logic. God created us as logical beings. Logic is where you have a premise, and maybe you have a couple premises, and because of the premises and the way they interact with one another, you come up with a conclusion. And so it, it's okay to, to use logic. Logic uh, comes into play uh, when the text of Scripture may or may not address a topic, but we reason based on our own ability. So we've, we've gone through the process of thinking biblically. We've gone through the th- process of thinking theologically. And now we're left with the understanding. We're still scratching our heads. We're trying to figure something out. And we, and we rely upon logic. And so logic is best exercised after we've already engaged in the first two. But the world doesn't, the world around us does not hold to a biblical or a theological view. So logic is often cast out there as the trump card for anything because if it violates logic, then you have no place to stand. And what I say is, if it violates logic, but it doesn't violate Scripture, if Scripture supports something that logic does not support, then we trust Scripture, right? So work with me here, all right? It's hanging there. There's going to be all opportunities for you to fall asleep today, all right? Because I'm going to talk about some other things. But here, here, this process of reasoning, biblical, theological, logical, and the last thing, where do we get our convictions from? This is the least likely, but it's there. Assumptions. We make assumptions about the text. Because you know what? We're not necessarily studying. Uh, We haven't necessarily heard. We're just reading it, and we kind of think, well, this sounds about right. And and what we don't even... and, And the thing about assumptions is we're not even thinking to ask the questions. That's what assuming means. We just assume. And so that's there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it is real, and it is influential in our life. And when we have assumptions that come across somebody else's assumptions, or our assumptions come across somebody else's logical, biblical, or theological, you know, and we start, that's when we start ironing, iron starts sharpening iron, and, and we come to a better understanding of things. But these are all real. So why am I explaining all this? I'm I'm sure you really want to know. Because I want to rightly divide the word of truth in a way that honors God and edifies his church. You. It's my job. It's my ministry. It's my calling. I'm supposed to do this to glorify God and to edify you. The presupposition that's been challenged in my life is the idea that there has been a cessation of certain gifts. And this is where I'm in violation of, of, uh, of our Constitution. When I, was, when I was interviewed here and I candidated here two years ago, I would not be preaching this sermon or sharing from my heart, whatever you're going to call this today, because we are going to get into the text of Scripture. 
But what I, the presupposition that, that's been challenged in my life is the idea of the cessation of certain gifts. There is a belief that certain gifts, for example, speaking in tongues, and just throw that one out there because that's the, the target of what Paul is dealing with. Um, and some people believe tongues have ceased. And I've always held to that. I've always held that. I've always held to the belief that there are certain sign gifts. And, that, and I do believe in sign gifts. Uh, speaking in tongues was a sign gift. Certain prophecy is a sign gift. They were given by God to individuals to authenticate the messenger. They did not have the inscripturated word of God, or at least not the New Testament. And so these signs were given for the purpose of, of authenticating the messenger. This person is a, is a person of God. Listen to him. All right, so, so as, we, as we consider sign gifts, I do believe that they are real and they exist, and, and that was for the purpose of the time. But where I'm wrestling with is I cannot, based upon my study of Scripture, say that, all, that, that certain gifts have ceased as in God can't use them anymore. So I'm going to talk more about that in, the, in later, right? So uh, again, I've been taught that certain gifts have ceased and therefore no longer in use. So what I want to do today is explain what I believe in regards to speaking in tongues and prophecy. I'm not going to answer all your questions. I don't have enough time to do that, and we're not going to get through as much of the text as I wanted to. I demonstrated that in the first service. So uh, we'll continue on in this series, and we'll keep wrestling with stuff. The best way I know how to do this is to review what we've been studying over the past few weeks. So now is when I invite you, please, please come to church. Come to this gathering with your Bible in, in paper form, in digital form. It doesn't really matter to me. I do think you should at least have one of these in your life, okay? Um, uh, because there may be an EMP bomb that goes off and we lose all technology and we will still have the Word of God. If you don't know what an EMP is, just go electromagnetic pulse. It'll wipe out, wipe out everybody and we'll be back in the Stone Age, okay? But if you own one of these... You're going to be okay. All right. So having said that, open up your Bibles to, to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. And we're going to basically review where we have been in our study of spiritual gifts. So hold on to your seats. I'm going to try and do this a little quicker than I did in the first service. In chapter 12, verse 3, we are told, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaks by the Spirit of God, uh, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What we consider there is that spiritual people are spiritual because they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We talk, the world wants to talk about spiritual people because they believe in a spiritual realm. We would say, based on what Scripture is teaching, that spiritual people are genuinely those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We are spiritual because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I, uh, the, the big idea for that particular message was the presence of the Spirit and is what empowers our witness and our worship. I don't know if you remember that far back, but it's, this is what's unique about the church. The genuine church of God is, is made up of believers in Jesus Christ who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then gifts each believer with gifts. And, and we'll, we'll see that in verse 4. It says spiritual people are given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 4 says. There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. So we've already talked about this. In verse 7, we see that spiritual gifts are given as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the benefit of everyone in the church. Look at verse 7 but the man, of chapter 12. But the manifestation of the Spirit. That means the Spirit is being made 
evidenced in front of people. That means the Holy Spirit is showing up on the scene in some way. It's a manifestation. It's a real thing. The Spirit is showing that He has arrived. Now, I, I, I'm amazed sometimes at how we act as conservative Baptists. Because we believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we act as if He's never in our midst. Do you pray that the Holy Spirit is going to empower you in your service to the body? Do you pray for your, for your church family to, to know that the Spirit is actually working in the lives of the other? Do you pray for your pastor or whoever the preacher is to say, would the Holy Spirit please show up in the words of that pastor? Now, we're going to talk about prophecy in a little bit, just again, a little bit here and there. But, you know, I do pray that the Holy Spirit is somehow empowering me week after week to communicate His Word, to rightly divide His Word in such a way where He is glorified, you are edified, and I'm not in trouble. Okay? Because I'm in trouble if I'm not glorifying God, and I'm, I'm in trouble if I'm not edifying you. But I do, I will say this. Do I believe I have the gift of prophecy? Sometimes I think God has to, in the nature of my job, I think it's almost one of those things that when you're preaching, there's some aspect of prophecy that must be involved. I'm, I'm sending forth the Word of God in such a way where it's supposed to impact you. And there are times where I say things that are not in my notes because I feel, I would say, I feel led by the Holy Spirit to share that, but that does not mean that you're supposed to write it down as if I'm an Old Testament prophet and you are accountable to it, and if you violate it, you're going to die. Right? I hope not. Don't do that. That's not, I'm just Greg Odeorn today, remember? Greg Odeorn, your pastor who loves you and who is trying to rightly divide the Word of God. So spiritual people are given spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. These gifts are the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the benefit of everyone in the church. And then we look at verses 12 through 30 of chapter 12, and we discover that each part of the body of Christ, that's you, is essential to the health of the body. You matter. And therefore, you should be active in the body by exercising your spiritual gift. That's the way the church functions. And this is, this is all leading us into chapter 14. But we know that each body part is essential. Then Paul takes a, a, a parenthetical thought. He says, by the way, before I get into chapter 14, let me pour into you 1 Corinthians 13 and, and communicate very clearly that sacrificial love is to be our motivation when we exercise our spiritual gifts. It's not just the... Pre Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. Starting in verse 1, we will be... This place would be empty, right? If that's the way that we... If I preached. If there's no conviction of soul, if there's no empowering of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is going to go forth. And the Word of God still does what the Word of God is going to do. But, but as we think about this idea, sacrificial love is to be our motivation when we exercise our spiritual gifts. I'm not looking for your approval when I say, I love you. I am commanded to love you. And you are commanded to love one another. Pursue love, 1 Corinthians 14.1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. 
the command that I've, I, you know, I'm seeking to influence you, to empower you, to exhort you, and I'm saying, will you love one another? It's not that you're not. It's just that the text of Scripture says you must. So if you're not, get with it and start loving one. If you are, which you are in so many ways, praise God. Sacrificial love, that, that other-focused love, is to be our motivation when we exercise our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others. And when we get to chapter 13, verse 8, and believe it or not, this is where we're going to spend even more time. Chapter 13, verse 8, the exercise of spiritual gifts will cease when the fulfillment of all Scripture takes place. So this is, this is just my simple wording of what's going on here. This is part of what uh, the email that I received, it kind of brought to focus that that, and again, I love this man, and this man loves me. This is not negative. This is edifying. This is what edification looks like, and this is how edification impacts the body, and this is why I was up late making sure that I could understand how to communicate this in a way that is hopefully more clear and transparent. This is, this is what ironing, sharpening iron. This is what edification looks like. What he did to me and his other-centered love of not thinking for himself, but thinking of you as it impacts me. Now I have the benefit of saying it in a different way to edify the whole body, to build up the body. The exercise of spiritual gifts is going to cease. We see this in verse 8 of chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 13. Um, We see uh, love never fails. But where, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, verse 9, uh, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, when, when we engage in this particular text, I explained a few things. I'm going to do it again. One of the things that uh, was expressed in the email was uh, the idea that I did not necessarily cover this word for word. And I don't always do that because I only have so much time and I already take way too much time on a regular basis. haven't figured out how to, how to, how to, how to fix that, all right? So, but I'm actually going to, this is where you might fall asleep. I'm going to actually read you some of the stuff that I had already studied, but I didn't share. I'm going to share some of this stuff now. So the few gifts listed in, in this verse are, are uh, as we see, we see prophecies, we see tongues, we see knowledge, okay? We see those three gifts. And we're told that they're going to fail, they're going to um, cease, they're going to vanish away. And the, and the question that comes into, into play here is, what is Paul saying? It's a good question. And the, and the specifics about this is there are two different verbs being used in this text. Uh, the first verb is basically uh, conveying, it's, it's attached to the ideas of prophecies and knowledge. Somehow they are going to cease. When are they going to cease? What we've talked about, when the perfect comes. Well, what's the perfect? That's one of the questions. What is the perfect? I believe that it's very saying in verse 9 and following, so that right now in this life, in this age, with our knowledge, we, we know in part, but there's coming a time when we will know as we are known. When is that going to happen? When all things are concluded, all right? God has done everything that he needed to do. Sin has been dealt with. Dealt with. Uh, we are in the presence of God. We are in the presence of God. That's when the perfect has come. Everything is complete. That's what the word perfect means. 
And so when, when we look at this, the, 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 the first few gifts, excuse me, this list of three gifts, I take it as being, uh, how did I say, representative of all the gifts. Now, Paul could have listed every gift, but in none of the listings of gifts is he ever exhaustive. And I, do, I take this as saying that not only prophecies, tongues, and knowledge will cease, but all gifts will cease when the perfect comes because we are in the presence of God. I don't need to be an encouragement to you anymore. I don't need to meet your needs, whether if I'm gifted in that way. All gifting is done because all things are perfect. So these two different verbs are used, and there's disagreement as to the significance of Paul's choice of verb, specifically the verb he uses in connection with tongues. So the question is, is, is Paul's use of verbs just stylistic? I know you have, you have done writing in your life, or you will as a younger person. You'll be writing, and, and you like to have a little variety in the way you write. It makes it more interesting. That happens throughout Scripture. We have poetry. We have all kinds of different genres of Scripture. Scripture is not boring. Unless maybe when you get to the so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, because it's so repetitive, right? And every once in a while, they, they, they turn the terminology around. And you're like, oh, thank you, right? That's so good. But is it stylistic or is Paul saying tongues will cease in a different way than prophecies and knowledge? And that's the crux of the tension right now. I am not one to throw out names, but I'm going to throw out some names. All right, I'm going to toss them out there because you might be a MacArthurite, you might be a Piperite, you might be a Carsonite, you might be any one of any number of people, scholars who write and do different things. Uh, John MacArthur has, has come out very, in his commentary on, on this passage, and he has come out very strongly that he believes in total cessation of tongues. And I'm going to leave it there because actually I don't know uh, how far he goes with prophecies and different things. But he is a cessationist. Sign gifts are done. And he's made a very strong case for that. And many people believe that. Piper, I watched a video on Piper, and John Piper is one of these guys that, uh, honestly, you, can't, you can never call him stupid. But I'll tell you, he's quirky, right? He says some things. But you know what? He actually says on video for you to watch that he's prayed for God to give him the gift of tongues. Well, why would he do that? 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll get there. He says God has never answered his prayer to give him the gift of tongues, but he has prayed for it nonetheless. Then you have D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson is, uh, whenever D.A. Carson's in the room, I believe he's the smartest one in the room. Uh, the guy is absolutely amazing. And, uh, and he, he takes exception to MacArthur's view. So here's the danger of me sharing all this stuff that I deal with behind the scenes as I'm studying. If I share all this stuff with you all the time, you're going to be thinking I'm following after one person or after another person or after another person, and why don't you just make them your pastor? Hey, I think you would be well served if Piper or John MacArthur or, or D.A. Carson were your pastor, all right? Um, stinks to be you. Okay, so I'm here, and I'm saying the verb form, this is what I, in my study, this is why I did not preach cessation. I have not, this was the challenge. Pastor, you have not brought up the word cessation of gifts in any of your messages on spiritual gifts. It's because I can't because of my convictions that are growing and changing as I'm studying. And so I'm asking you, walk with me down the road, but you be Bereans and you search and you come to your own conclusions. I am saying I'm at odds with our Constitution. That's going to have to be get dealt with in some way. 
All right, I am, that's going to have to happen, all right? We'll, we'll, we'll have to work through that as a, as a body. But here, follow along with me. The verb form used for, that, for the speaking of tongues is, um, is uh, found in a different, it's a different word, but it's also found in a different form. So I'm going to go ahead and read D.A. Carson's quote because he does an, uh, an excellent job explaining it. Don't fall asleep. In verse 8, the verb with prophecies and with knowledge is in the passive voice. Prophecies and knowledge, quote, uh, quotation, will be destroyed. That's what the word means. Apparently in connection with the coming of, in quotes, perfection in, in verse 10. But the verb with tongues, which is uh, a Greek word that I'm not going to pr- try and pronounce because I'll mess it up and you don't care, is in the middle voice. Some take this to mean that tongues will cease of themselves. So the idea there in the middle voice is, is that when the, the action of the verb, the subject of the verb acts upon itself. Okay, that's a very limited way, and I may not be fully accurate, but that's what I'm understanding. It says, in the middle voice, some take this to mean that tongues will cease of themselves. It will cease differently than prophecies and knowledge. There is something intrinsic in their character that demands they cease. This is talking about uh, uh, the verb in the, in the middle voice. Apparently, independently of the cessation of prophecy and knowledge. This view assumes, and this is where Carson is at odds with MacArthur, this view assumes without warrant that the switch to this verb is more than a stylistic variation. Worse, it interprets the middle voice irresponsibly. This is when all of us should go, ooh. This is Carson and MacArthur in a sense. I don't know if Carson has MacArthur in in mind when he says this. And I'm not trashing MacArthur. I'm not. MacArthur is a very smart man. I've read much of what he's written, and it has edified me. I'm just saying I disagree with him in this context. I think what what D.A. Carson is about to share makes sense to me. But what what MacArthur is saying is that because of the choice of Paul's verb in the middle voice, it should impact the way we understand the cessation of tongues. And he's right. It ought to impact us. But his conclusion is because of the use of that verb, tongues have ceased. They're done. And I don't think we can be that declarative. Carson goes on to say, uh, it, views, uh, it assumes without warrant the switch to this verb is more than a stylistic variation. Worse, it interprets the middle voice irresponsibly. In Hellenistic Greek, the middle voice affects the meaning of the verb in a variety of ways, and not only in the future of some verbs, where middles are more common, but also in other tenses. Uh, hang in there. I'm going to get through it. But also in other tenses, the middle form may be used while the active force is preserved. What, what D.A. Carson is saying is that sometimes certain verbs look different. All right? He's going to use this word. He says, as such point, the verb is a deponent. Does anybody know what a deponent is? Please, raise your hand if you know what a deponent is. Right, so I get the joy of explaining it to you, and I will do it in layman's terms as best I can, and that is this. When you have any language and you have words that are, you have the root, and you have things that are added onto the front, and there's things that are added onto the end, and, and, and we know this from languages. Whatever you add onto the end or the front, it changes the intent or the, the voice or the tense of the word, of the verb, or whatever it is, right? So all that's saying here is a deponent is something that looks like something that it's not. 
okay? It looks, because of the way these things add on to the word, it actually looks like a different thing than what it is. And so in this case, it's, it looks like the middle voice that would act upon itself. But Carson is saying it's not that. He's saying that the, it just looks like that. Okay, and I'm going to keep reading. He says, One knows what force the middle voice has only by careful inspection of all occurrences of the verb being studied. Now, I wish he had done more. He only cites one, and I'll read it, but I think it's sufficient. He says, we know this by you. We study the verb, right? You want to find out what the verb means? Look at all the occurrences of it. He says, in the New Testament, this wor- verb, the, the one that's used to, to address tongues, it, it prefers the middle. It's the way, it, it, the way it's constructed. It prefers the middle, and that's more of a linguistic thing, but uh, you'll just, just work with me here. But that does not mean the subject stops under its own power. In the middle voice, tongues would cease of itself. Somehow it would implode. Somehow it would just stop. What he's saying is uh, that's not always true because, for instance, when Jesus rebukes the wind and the raging waters, the storm stops. In parentheses, he has same verb, middle voice, in Luke 8.24. And certainly the winds and the waves did not stop under their own power. Jesus stopped it. Okay, so I don't know if you're bored to tears yet or not, but this is part of my studying. This is part of what I do. This is part of what anybody's doing. I don't choose to always share this stuff with you. Because why? Because right now, to me, this is really exciting because I get to explain some stuff that you may not know, but at the same time, I also may have lost half of you and I don't even know. Godly people disagree on how to interpret this verb. MacArthur, godly man. D.A. Carson, Piper, godly man, and many, many others. But they agree to disagree on this, or at least they disagree on this particular case. So listen to what I'm saying what I'm not saying. I am not saying that speaking in tongues has ceased. That's the problem. That's why I'm sharing my heart. I cannot, based upon what I have read in Scripture and what I study, I cannot say, thus saith the Lord, tongues have ceased. But I am also not saying that they continue. How's that for wishy-washy? Okay, right? Uh, What I'm saying is, I'm not sure. And that's what I said last week. I don't think I'm qualified to judge certain aspects of things because I do not have the life experience, nor do I have the ability to go to Scripture and say, thus saith the Lord. Biblically speaking, I can't make the statement. Theologically speaking, MacArthur and Piper and Carson are making uh, uh, comments, and they're all smarter than me. And, and so I'm just saying, I'm not willing to go out on that limb and say it has stopped, tongues have ceased, because if they have not ceased, I am wrongly dividing the Word of God. Now, I will say this. I do not believe that tongues, the modern expressions of tongues that we see today, are the way tongues were necessarily done uh, back in the first century. I'll I'll touch on that in a minute, and I, I need to keep going. So how can I say something so definitive when pastors and scholars who know so much more about the Greek language disagree, and I'm just saying I can't. So there's also no unanimous understanding about what constitutes the gifts of prophecies, Uh, prophecy and speaking in tongues that Paul is writing about. Isn't this wonderful? I get to stand up here week after week, and when I can say, thus saith the Lord, I am like, oh, 
this is so nice. It's black and white. Do you realize in 1 Corinthians, it has been a struggle to wrestle with all the possibilities of what's going on in the Corinthian church, what Paul is addressing, what, what is what the Corinthians are saying, what Paul is addressing, what are the issues, because we are not dealing with tongues and prophecies as a problem within Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. We're not. It's just not a problem here. Now, we will have differences of opinion on whether or not they have ceased and certain gifts have ceased, but there's still a lot of love going on here. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that even as we talk about what constitutes prophecy and what constitutes uh, speaking in tongues, there is not a unanimous understanding of this. I wish I could tell you prophecy is X, Y, and Z. But I can't do that completely. And I think we can theologize, and, and we must theologize. And I do know, for instance, uh, let me get back to my notes. I, I actually have some comments about this. So what I'm saying is uh, there's no unanimous understanding. This does not mean we don't know anything about the gifts, but we, do not, we, we certainly do not know uh, everything about them. So we know certain aspects of tongues and, and, and prophecy. Both gifts are speaking gifts as Paul describes them. He's very intent, and he goes, listen, uh, pursue love, desire earnestly, desire spiritual gifts, right? And, and then he says, but especially prophecy. And that's what we talked about last week. So we know that the, both tongues and prophecy are speaking gifts. That's what Paul describes. Both were known to the recipients of Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians, right? Who was Paul writing to? the very people that were practicing prophecy and speaking in tongues. The difficult aspect of our 21st century mindset is Paul didn't tell us what was already known. He dealt with how they were wrong. Uh, he corrected their understanding of things. But in this text, he does not tell us about the right way to use prophecy, the right way of use tongues in the sense of what they were practicing already. So let me get back to my notes. So um, Paul did not have to explain what they were to the Corinthians because they were practicing both these gifts uh, as he spoke, as he wrote. Uh, Paul confronts their wrong practices but does not give us much detail as to the actual healthy practice. He, he just doesn't give us a lot of detail. There is a gap in our understanding, and we need to be careful how we fill the gap. That is my point. I am your pastor. I am preaching God's word. I, and don't take this the wrong way. I'm doing the best I can. I'm not like, woe is me. I'm like, no, God called me here. I know I'm doing what God called me to do. Am I perfect? No. And neither are you perfect Bereans. Right? We're in this together, and I'm willing to grow and learn and be challenged. And I hope you are too, because all I'm saying is, careful how you fill the gap. Is it biblical, theological? Is it logic? Is it assumption? Wrestle with that as you, as you consider what your convictions are. This is where the biblical and theological reasoning come in. Logical reasoning may fall short in the absence of information because a faulty premise will result in a faulty conclusion. If we're wrong about the premise, here's the premise. Tongues have ceased. That's the premise. Scripture doesn't say they have ceased. It says they, it, they will cease. And if we can wrestle with the middle verb and all that stuff, I get that. But I cannot with, with genuine clarity say that that's true. But if we are faulty our, in our premise that tongues have ceased, then we are faulty in our conclusion. 
And so I'll close with this. What am I, uh, uh, what am I saying about the way uh, we see tongues exercised today? I believe that we as a church are called to confront the modern charismatic movement with, uh, with concern. I do not know exactly what speaking in tongues was in the first century. There are, we're not even getting to the text today. We're not even going to get there. But is it a prayer language? Is it something to be practiced publicly? We're going to see in chapter 14 that, hey, Paul gives a caveat. He says, listen, if you want to, two or three at the most, speak in tongues. After that, be quiet. So you're in control. The charismatic movement wants us to understand language to be, uh, well, not everybody in the charismatic movement. I'm just saying the aberration, the, the wrong way of doing this. Uh, I do not know what, spiritual, what speaking in tongues is fully, but I know what it's not. It is not chaos in worship. It is not a bunch of people speaking all at the same time, no interpretation, no one has an idea of what's going on, and how many of you have actually experienced that? Some of you have experienced that in this room. A few people, I see some hands up, right? I've never experienced it, and I'm preaching about it. But I trust you. I believe your experiences. I read the reports. I've seen the videos. And you see these things, and we're like, what is going on there? Paul's going to address that in the rest of 14, right? We're just not going to get there today. But I know what spiritual tongues is not, or speaking tongues is not. It is not what we see today in the sense of gibberish. Are there legitimate exercises of speaking in tongues in today's world? After the first service, I had a sister in Christ come up to me and share her experience. And her experience, how am I supposed to tell her that her experience, am I supposed to go to the sister in Christ and she says, well, yeah, I spoke in tongues here. It was, a pra- it was in prayer, Right? It wasn't public, it was prayer. And what am I supposed to tell this sister in Christ? Well, that's of the devil. Wait a minute, remember chapter 12, verse 1. Nobody can say that Christ is the Son of God without, without the Holy Spirit. This person is exuding spirituality. This person is exuding a love for God. She was not doing it in a public setting. There was a story that on Friday, uh, Jeff and I were in our office, and a, and a lady came in, and, and she shared a story about a missionary that she had heard firsthand who said when he was on the mission field, uh, and he, he encountered people, he said, listen, all of a sudden, they were understanding me, and I don't know their language. Is that a modern expression of speaking in tongues? Well, I think it's a biblical one. Acts chapter 2 describes that. It's a known language that, the, that the, the apostles did not know prior to that, and people are hearing it in their own language. So I would think that, that missionary, what did that missionary do with that experience? Oh, he went on a book drive, right, and tried to become famous and earn all kinds of money. No, he shares it when appropriate because his focus is the gospel of Jesus Christ getting out into all the world, and God chose and that's, am I supposed to tell that missionary who's focused on spreading the gospel? Well, that speaking in tongues must have been of the devil because tongues have ceased. I can't do that. That's all I'm saying. I can't do that. The Word of God is not that declarative. But I, do, I, I will say that what we do to understand is that faith, hope, and love continue into our eternal future, chapter 13 and chapter 14, but spiritual gifts do not continue. So pursue love now and desire spiritual gifts now. Desire prophecy. And then we considered last week, prophecy is better than speaking in tongues. Because tongues are addressed to God, whereas prophecy speaks to people. 
And in that speaking, it edifies. Remember, it builds up. It exhorts. It challenges one another. It comforts one another. This is one aspect of what prophecy does and what prophecy is. But it's not exhaustive. This is certainly aspects of it. And we'll get into more of it as we get into next week. Tongues build up the individual, whereas prophecy builds up the church. Paul's going to say in the text that we never got to today, that if I came to you speaking in tongues and you didn't understand me, what is it going to profit you? The answer is nothing, because it's gibberish. You don't understand me. I'm a foreigner to you. And he says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. He says, prophecy and tongues are, are brought close to the same level when tongues are interpreted. So when there is an interpretation of the tongue and we understand the content of what's there, then the church is edified. So last week, the big idea was love is the motivation that allows spiritual gifts to strengthen the church. That was the challenge, and it's still the challenge. Let's love one another. Let's use that love, that genuine, other-focused, sacrificial love in the exercise of our gifts to, to benefit the whole body. Love is the motivation for using our gifts. Strengthening the church is the goal. And what we learn in the, in the text that we'll look at next week is that Paul tells us that the church, um, that the church is best strengthened by clearly spoken words than by words or sounds that confuse those who are listening. That's what he's saying. So the big idea that we'll tackle next week, because I was very lofty in my hopes of getting anywhere today, the big idea really we'll look at next week, the next couple weeks, the strength of the body, that's us, is increased when God's Word is spoken in clarity. Now, I'm not the most gifted preacher. I'll admit that. And I, 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 there are times where I've confused you. I know it, and, I, and I'm not proud of that. But when we can build our convictions based upon what the text of Scripture says or the theological wrestling of what different Scriptures say, we're on pretty solid ground. And the church is strengthened when we encounter God's Word in a, in a, spoken in a clear fashion. Doctrinal depth is one of those things that we, that we value. And that basically says that a passion for God will draw us deeper into His Word. So be Bereans. Since you're believers in Christ, since you've come to faith, be Bereans and get into his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had today, and we've obviously spent a long time talking about these things. I thank you for the attentiveness of these people. Father, I thank you that you work in the, in the lives of, of brothers and sisters in Christ as, as they communicate back to me uh, concerns. It's for your glory that they're doing it. I pray, Lord, that I was better at explaining some of the technical issues that are going on in the text. Thank you for spiritual gifts. Thank you that they are not ours to own, but ours to experience as the Holy Spirit chooses to work through us. Father, thank you that spiritual gifts are intended to, to edify the body of Christ, to build us up. And some of those gifts will be expressed and they will actually grow the body of Christ by by uh, unbelievers coming to faith. Father, thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We have not arrived, but you have revealed yourself to us. We pray that you continue to do that. Help us to have convictions that are based upon your word, but Lord, help us to also have some flexibility in terms of understanding what other people who are strong believers how we agree to disagree. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified as we respond 
to this very real dynamic in our church and in the churches that exist in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.